Hello, and welcome to the Honest Politics Podcast. My name is Alex Gamsik, and I am the founder of Honest Politics, LLC. My company does high-level political consulting, but not for politicians. My services are catered to everyday Americans, just like you and me. So let's get started. Today, I was planning on doing an episode on gun violence, particularly self-defense using guns, but I really am getting into the research, and I want to make a fully developed episode, which will take some time. So instead, I decided to go for a paper on a fully developed democracy that I wrote. I wrote this one in 2015, and it's on South Korea. So South Korea is interesting because they had one of the greatest trajectories towards democracy in modern times. Uh, They are currently an 83 out of 100 in terms of their freedom score on Freedom House. Uh, which is pretty good. They're very close to the U.S., which is at 87. So what I'm going to do is go through this paper, which I'm I'm telling you it took a while digging through the archives to find it. Um, And I got a 95% on this paper, so that's awesome. You know, my professor, she was, she gave us like readings after readings after readings, and we had to type out at least six pages of homework per week. That's not counting all these papers we had to do, but I learned a ton about democracy through that class, and uh, I was very happy about it. So here's the paper. The political decision that democratized South Korea. Now, I'm also going to say, I it, Korean names are also very hard for me, so I'm sorry. South Korea has evolved from an agricultural nation colonized by the Chinese and Japanese to a fully independent and industrialized democracy. Major companies like Hyundai and Samsung are competitive with the largest Japanese and American companies. Freedom House bestows South Korea high ratings for civil liberties and political freedom. The most famous example of financial and civil success within South Korea is shown through the music video for PSY's song Gangnam Style. (laughs) So I kind of am kind of trolly with some of my papers, so I put Gangnam Style in here just to kind of stick it to the professor. Uh, which, like, is the least uh, thuggish rebellion kind of thing anyone could do, but whatever. The free-spirited nature of this video, combined with it being the most viewed video on YouTube, by far with almost 2.5 billion views, this was in 2015, shows the combination of freedom and riches South Korea now enjoys. Despite its current position, South Korea was not truly democratic until the late 80s and early 90s. Before then, South Korea was under military dictatorships that arose from conflicts in the Korean War and an armistice that never guaranteed peace with North Korea. This paper sets out to explore how Korea became a democracy and what triggered that transition. Although there were many factors that helped democratization, such as modernization, extreme political pressures, internal divisions, and non-state actors, the selfish political choice of Rotewo to concede democratic values in exchange for the presidency was the trigger to initiate democracy. This highly specific choice made the South Korean case illogical for creating broad assumptions and theories about democratization. Three scholars have attempted to do just that, and in so have shed some valuable insight as to how South Korea democratized, even if they missed exactly why democratization took place. Inso Kim proposed that the divided military schools and rivalries present, 
prevented the military from repressing democratic protests. Yukaiheo and Sengriyun responded to Kim by supporting the modernization theory. Sumeoi offered an entirely different argument, proposing that a transnational protection regime, individuals supporting politically based human rights, put enough bottom up pressure for authoritarianism to be overturned. However, none of them considered Roe's choice as a catalyst, even though that was the point at which presidential powers weakened. In order to understand why Roe made this choice, it is best to give a brief history on South Korea and include the reasoning of the previously mentioned scholars. So if you want to learn more about these scholars and see the citations and read their articles, send an email to alex at honestpoliticsllc.com and uh, I'll send you this paper. It only takes 30 seconds, it's not a hardship, so do it. On the outset, it seemed that Korea's authoritarian governments... Uh, sorry. On the outset, it seemed that Korea's authoritative, authoritarian governments were working for the Korean people. After President Park Chung-hee came into power in 1963, the economy grew drastically. From 1962 to 1980... GNP per capita, <laughs> uh, yeah, per capita, rose from 87 to 1,503 U.S. dollars. And exports rose by 32.8% per year during the same time frame. The Korean people enjoyed an industrial boom that they could contribute to their new leadership. In Mark Thompson's article, Concerned with Democratic Shifts in Asian Countries, he explained that the Korean government would give subsidies to companies that performed well. Underperforming companies were punished by withholding subsidies. The harsh quotas set by government expectations forced Korean companies to perform. As with other Asian countries, big businesses had personal connections to the government. Oligopolies were permitted to form, which gave rise to huge businesses with a lot of power. All of this together is what Thompson called developmental authoritarianism. Developmental authoritarianism runs contradictory to modern democracy, but it worked in helping the Korean economy. The other anti-democratic policies of President Park included jailing human rights activists, like the now-famous Kim Jae-dong, and the arrests of peaceful protesters. When college students learned of the government's repressive politics, they were often the leaders and participants of protests. The government's crackdown on these students led to two famous tragedies. The first was the Kwangju Massacre, in which a town protesting against the government was attacked by police, killing and injuring 5,000 people. The second was when college student protester Park Jeonjul was tortured to death by the government officials in 1987. Both of these incidents set off major protests and shifted public opinion in favor of democracy. President Park and President Chun used the military to repress these democratic movements, which is why Inso Kim wrote an article explaining how military divisions cause democratization. Kim's hypothesis was that the disintegra- quote, that disintegration of military cohesion ultimately reduced the regime's capacity to block the transition to democracy in South Korea in the 1980s. End quote. He based this statement off of the Korean Military Academy's Hana faction. This was a group of alumni that never 
seen combat and therefore differed from their previous generations. The two groups were apparently at odds with each other, and a provided table showed that was supposed to show that Hana faction members were promoted at a higher rate than other generation. What? <laughs> oh, God. Was I supposed to attach a table or something? <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. And we're back. This helped create the 1212 Mutiny in 1979 when President Park was assassinated by Kim Jong-kyu. Head, yeah, so the president was assassinated, okay? <laughs> Freaking Korea. Head of the Korean Central Intelligence. He was assassinated by the he head of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. This is some movie-level stuff, okay, guys? I was freaking out when I researched this. I'm like, how is there not a famous movie? Kim Jae-kyu had been resistant to the brutal repressive t policies of President Park for a long time and had been jailed by Park in the past. In So Kim seemed to think sections of the military were resistors like Kim JQ. His argument suffered from a lack of concrete evidence. The included graphs and tables, which you obviously can't see on the podcast, that were either overly simplistic or didn't show trends. Kim's argument did well to highlight the divisions within the country and President Park's allies, but it failed to show how military divisions prevented repression of democratic movements. Even if part of the military was out of Park's control, peaceful protesters can be easily forced to subsist with tear gas, highly sophisticated weapons, and armored vehicles. The question of whether a military could stop an insurrection was not the case in South Korea. Yoo Kei-hyo and Seon Jin-yoo also disliked Kim's argument, saying there was no evidence for this claim of intramilitary conflict. Instead, they took an approach that followed the modernization theory, claiming that increased salaries and education allowed democratic evolution to take place. As stated previously, Korea's economy took a turn for the better under President Park's developmental authoritarianism. Hyo and Yoon cited that from 1970 to 1990, the percentage of Koreans with a college education went up from about 5% to about 24%. These changes created a stronger middle class, which had the time and resources to actively oppose authoritarian regimes. The modernization theory suggested that the protests in South Korea were a natural outcome for the new middle class, which were naturally inclined to desire more individual rights. Once the costs of putting these protests down exceeded the benefits, then the regime could um, would concede some democratic reforms. The author stated that since an Olympic... Since the Olympic Games were to be hosted in Seoul in 1988, military crackdowns would be frowned upon by the international community. In addition, the Reagan administration discontinued its policy of ignoring South Korean human rights violations because where Americans were starting to hear about torture and deaths of students like Park Jung chul With pressure from the Americans, domestic partners, I mean domestic protesters, and the international community, President Chun and Ro made the decision to allow for a democratic presidential election. They made this decision knowing that their opposition was split between two other candidates, which allowed Ro to win fair and square. Hyo and Yun have a much better argument than Kim. However, the argument put forth by Su Mei Oi 
proved that there was still more to the situation than just these political pressures. Oi looked more at the casual changes that allowed the shift in policy to take place. She said that the pressure from Reagan's rhetoric and the upcoming Olympic Games were not the cause of democratization. People did not suddenly change their minds and desire democracy because of political pressure. Instead, transnational protection regimes slowly created the mindset and pressures necessary for democracy. Transnational protection regimes were defined as human rights workers or Christian missionaries who spread information, formally and informally, across borders about the situation on the ground. To differentiate them from the human rights activists of international relations, Oi said that these missionaries had a political mission that extended beyond alleviating human suffering. These protectionists wanted to destroy, to create democracy in South Korea, and some of them wanted to unify the government. Oh my god, that stupid mistake. These protectionists wanted to create democracy in South Korea, and some of them wanted to unify the Korean continent. They also helped U.S. congressmen learn about the human rights violations so that they could begin passing resolutions against South Korean oppression tactics. Reporting to news agencies helped spread the word to places across the world. This secret network of information sharing is what Oi says really made the democracy possible in South Korea. While Oi's argument is important for understanding the cause of democratic campaigns across Korea, it is a broad argument. The same could be said for Kim's argument, and Hyo and Yun's argument. Oi did not mention that the transnational protection regimes have existed in most countries, and secret information networks are not a new phenomenon. Sure, they help promote democracy, but they are simply information spreaders, and that is not limited to South Korea. Kim went on about intramilitary divisions, but without support. He was basing his argument off of generational rivalries, which occur in many places other than South Korea. Hyun-yun provided the best argument with the most factors contributing to democracy building, but they couldn't seem to narrow down the point where democracy really took hold in South Korea. The moment democracy took hold in South Korea was when Roe sat with President Chun and decided to run a fair race for the presidency. At that moment, they were betting on the opposition being split between two other candidates and, with re-election possible under the Constitution, there was no reason not to allow democratic process. Combined with the domestic democratic protests, pressure from Washington, and the international community's scrutiny of the Olympic Games, this was a personal political decision. It was nothing more than the furthering of Roe's career. He made the decision out of self-interest because the pros outweighed the cons. In a world where every nation is so vastly different, in the field of comparative politics... Wow, okay. I keep getting notifications on my phone about this impeachment thing, and it's very distracting. Uh, So, he made the decision out of self-interest because the pros outweighed the cons. In a world where every nation is so vastly different, in the field of comparative politics where every subject is their own unique self, broad theories can only reach so far. Although Roe's personal decision is not something that can be applied to other countries, it is the only true way to explain how South Korea finally became a democracy. 
Thank you so much for listening to this. I did not realize how dense this was. Um, this was an upper level democracy class, but even, I mean, it's the same class as the Azerbaijan paper, but even compared to that, holy moly, this is, this is a mountain to climb through. There's so many details, and I was mostly going through democratization theories, and um, I can't even remember my full argument, but I think I was refuting a lot of the theories that people were coming up with, either because they were so broad that you couldn't apply them to any specific situation, or that they just were misplaced or didn't work within the context of South Korea. So South Korea, like Azerbaijan, had a big economic boom, but in South Korea's case, the economic boom led to democratization, partially because the middle class developed and the middle class started demanding democracy. They wanted their individual rights and freedoms. Azerbaijan's a little different in that they're kind of more content because they love the Aliyev family and they're happy to have them as um, authoritarian rulers. But I mean, this this part, I remember researching this part so clearly with the assassination of the president by the director of um, central intelligence. It, it, was, it read to me like a movie, and I was so tempted to put most of it in the paper, but I only put like a sentence or two, which if you've ever, you know, done one of these big papers, you know the frustration of reading an entire academic article, which could take you two hours, and then from all of that, putting two sentences in your paper <laughs> or casting aside the article entirely because it didn't work or it wasn't good or, you know. South Korea had its own very specific situation in that moment, and that's why they democratize. Roe did it out of self-interest knowing he would win the election, but, you know, they started allowing elections and their democratization rating started soaring So um, after the 80s. And now it's a fully-fledged democracy, um, like I was saying earlier, although it could use some work. Like, uh, similar to J Japan, I know at least, the businesses and the government have very strong ties. Uh, that leads you to question <laughs> a few decisions here and there. Um, the, like, and J now I'm ranting about Japan, but, like, the, you know, test as hard as you can to get the best middle schools you can, to get the best high schools you can, to get the best colleges you can, and those colleges you end up in are basically the corporations you end up in. And those corporations have huge amounts of power over the government. But I do, I did um, take a class on China, Japan, US policy, and I'll be reading some of those papers, I'm sure, because it's all just fascinating stuff. Um, I love East Asian countries, at least studying them, and I hope to go one day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Honest Politics Podcast. My name's Alex Gamsik, and I hope to see you next time as we discover more of the stories behind the statistics. Mm -hmm.